Follow me, some people own stocks. Welcome to Playing Footsie, the podcast where we talk about stocks, investing, and personal finance. Before we start, we want to make it clear that the information presented on this show is for informational and entertainment purposes only. None of us is a financial advisor, and this is not financial advice. Investing in the stock market comes with risks, and we strongly encourage our listeners to do their own research and consult with a licensed financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Now, let's dive into the world of finance and talk about what we're doing with our money. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. It's Saturday, the 25th of November. We've had a busy week from the UK, both in the stock market and in terms of the autumn statement that Steve and I will be talking about very, very shortly. Uh, We are closing in, of course, on Steve's magic day number, um, and he's hoping that his own birthday will go under the radar, but that's not going to happen on this show. I will make sure something happens. I don't know how. But anyway, Steve, how have you been this week? Are you excited to talk about things that have been happening in the UK uh, financially? No, uh, well, I've had an all right week, but I, I don't think there's very much to talk about uh, that happened uh, this week in the UK financially. Um, I thought uh, what happened midweek was essentially uh, very dull and un- and uninteresting, but we, we will drop onto that. Um, I had a I had a fall in week like a like an old man, Steve. I was climbing up a ladder and I didn't realize it hadn't been tied properly. And um, yeah, it, it, it lurched to the right, and my hip went straight. Well, a bolt went straight into my hip from a piece of Oi. scaffolding. So I had a fairly uh, nasty week. It's all bruised, and I have a bolt shaped cut in my in my hip, which is not pleasant. But um, it was my fault for not checking. But it's also their fault for not tying it in the first yeah. place. But uh, never mind. Um, but in terms of stock, Steve, I've had a decent week. Um, I was up a little bit more than I thought at first. I originally calculated about 0.3. It's more like 0.5. That's not beating the S&P or the NASDAQ, but it is beating VWRP, which is about down by the same amount there. So it's not been too bad. Uh, for me, uh, we obviously moved the market last week, Steve, because WISE is up 6.15%. Um, but <clears throat> stocks that went with it, Bloomsbury was up 5.64. for Adyen up again 3.41. I'm nearly in the green on that again. Uh, Fortinet was up 2.93, Fortera 2.27, and Evolution, which is one of my fairly newer stocks, was up 2.1. 22 of my stocks up, 8 of them down, 73.33% up, Steve, 24 of them beating the VWRP, which is 80% of them. So can't complain, really. Uh, I thought it's been a fairly decent week. The only bad performance for me was Zender, which was down 4.89% on the week, and Autodesk, which had a... Uh, well, I was quite surprised because I, I read the report first and I always like to read it first and then think, right, how's the market going to think about this? And I got to the end of it thinking, I'm in serious trouble. And I, uh, I I looked in the aftermarket and it was up about 5%. I was like, okay, I'll have to read this again. There's evidently something I've missed in here, um, but I didn't have time on the night, so I thought I'd read it the next day. When the market opened, it was sent down about 7%. So I was like, nope, I fully, <laughs> nope, I was right in the first place. Someone was obviously being daft. So, yeah, that was my week, Steve. How how about you? Oh, good news that someone then has lost their job at a hedge fund somewhere by mistaking that stock and going the wrong way. Uh, my week's been okay. I am down this week, down by almost exactly a quarter of 1%. It's near as makes no difference. Obviously, it goes out to quite a lot of decimals. But when you round it back, it's a quarter of 1%, basically, which I think puts me behind everything apart from VWRP, which I think you said was down by about a half or so. Um, that's the shape of this week. As usual, we're moving markets everywhere. I continue to single-handedly push the REIT market higher. Um, and, but we'll see how that goes going forward. I've been starting to think about sort of 2024 ideas as well, actually, because this is the kind of thing that seems to be hitting my um, 
inbox and uh and well various other places where i find stuff it looks like we're starting to get into prediction season uh and with potentially taking a couple of weeks out from here it might be that the next thing we'd have to think about is uh what our predictions for the next year might be so that'll be um good to think about outside uh it's really busy the next basically the next 10 days 10 calendar days from monday not 10 working days are absolutely insane at work and more or less that's the point where we just try and hang on through the last week of term when everything's got to get done and then through the interview season for us which is always very very congested and very uh it's reasonably high pressured at that point but um yeah i've been it's my first time running the interviews uh for our college in the admission system i'm covering for the person who is on leave i've actually quite enjoyed it it's a little bit like uh feels a little bit sort of football manager like trying to recruit people find the best sort of uh team you can there's a lot more uncertainty about this kind of thing and we still have an interview process to go but it's good fun looking at the kind of strength of a cohort and what's available in the in the free agent market after colleges have made their initial decisions and who's available to be picked up and and so on i i quite enjoyed that it's i I imagine it gets boring quite quickly when you do this a few years year on year and it's the same process and ultimately it doesn't turn out very rewarding i suspect because the people you've rescued at this stage may well not make it to the end so all you've done is given yourself an extra interview to do but um i'm finding that quite enjoyable for the moment is this is this what used to be called clearing essentially or or i can't imagine oxford engages in clearing Oxford does not engage in clearing. Oxford does DIY clearing, uh, if you're interested in what happens here. So the way the system works is that um, applicants apply to colleges and colleges, some colleges are in a position to make what they call an open offer to a candidate based on the number of people that have applied and so on. They have uh, what is called a, uh, there's a kind of common pool and they make an open offer, which means the student has an offer from the University of Oxford but not from any specific college. What that does is cover if anyone misses their grades when the time comes or decides they don't want to come. So last year we had quite sharp grade deflation um, and a few people missed their grades. So that pool basically got taken out elsewhere, which is effectively Oxford's internal clearing system. And uh, as a result, that pool got used. If people in that pool aren't picked up anywhere because everyone gets their grades and everyone decides to come, that student goes back to the college that made them the offer. So they get picked up again. But uh, some colleges will be making, say, two offers that they know might not be coming to them because they might be picked up uh, elsewhere along the way. And that's um, that's always kind of, that's enough to keep colleges interested in in sticking good quality candidates in there because you might have to teach them. The, the two years I've made open offers to people, we have had, had both of them uh, back at the college that we were at, either because not enough people uh, missed or nobody missed basically um but yeah that's that's the shape of my week and that's the shape of my next couple of weeks to be honest fairly chaotic but but really quite interesting at this stage at least when it's the first couple of times that you're that you're doing it uh should we talk about christmas steve let's do it okay christmas um it was black friday of course yesterday and i did significant amounts of consuming stuff or at least spending money in a consumption type way i've bought a phone i've bought some trainers i've bought some cricket shoes and i've bought some other things as well uh but before that arrived uh and before black friday i would point out as well someone decided they were going to get the jump on their christmas shopping which means i have with me this which arrived through the door uh it came with a note saying if you ever wonder why i squirm every time anyone mentions dalio you'll know soon merry christmas from steve d so uh, this is my Christmas present from Steve. It feels a lot like a book, 
Um, I haven't looked, by the way. It feels a lot like a book. I also believe it's a book because he asked what was on my Christmas reading list uh, this year, which tells me, um, uh, and I, I gave a list of, one thing counts as a list, right? Um, it's a short yeah, yeah, list, a, but a uh, list. I had a list of one, which was the the new Charlie Munger almanac um, thing. That's a, a weird phrase. But I'm assuming, and I haven't looked, that it's not that, because I think it's probably too thin for that. And I also said, and you, I get the impression you left that for someone else. I got the impression you were trying to work out whether something was on that list, and it wasn't that. So it is, ladies and gentlemen. Um, oh, Steve, you can... I don't know. Are you busy today? Can you fit a drum roll in at this point? Let's see how we go. Uh, I can do it. I'll do it. I'll do it off uh, in, but I'll do it in the edit because it'll be easier. Yes, that's that's kind of what I meant. Here. Not are you uh, able to produce one right now? For I me. could. It is this. That's the wrong way around. This. Uh, it's called the Fund. Ray Dalio, Bridgewater Associates, and the Unraveling of a Wall Street Legend by a guy called Rob Copeland. So one Wall Street legend to another uh, in that case. it's. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing what it's about. There's quite a lot here. I won't read all this out. But um, it describes itself as the most explosive, mind-blowing business book this person has ever read and the most fun too, says Bradley Hope, New York Times bestselling author of Billion Dollar Whale. Uh, another book I haven't read. Uh, at last, says Brian Burrow, the era of the billionaire philosopher king has a defining book. The Fund is a taut non-fiction thriller, best-selling author of Barbarians at the Gate. Thanks, Steve. I am looking forward to having a read of this. The print is a decent size, so I'll be perfectly mm -hmm. fine with that. I'm off with the in-laws for about a week or so in Scotland in the new year. I think it will probably come with me then while we celebrate Christmas together. Um, but yes, I am very much looking forward to uh, this one. That will be my... At some point, this will be my future consumption thing. Uh, so you'll have an easy time talking about that with me, I guess. But um, what have you consumed this week, Steve, if anything? So I have consumed this week um, the Sliceonomics podcast um, on Ooh. YouTube. It's a very new podcast. It's um, it's uh, Gen Z, I think she is, um, economist Kyla Scanlon. And um, she's got uh, she got quite famous on TikTok over COVID, and she's since expanded into multiple things. She does a lot of talks um, now, and um, she's been on uh, a number of sort of um, news outfits. Um, and she started this new podcast called Sisonomics, and because she's so big, she's had some very uh, interesting guests on already, um, including um, some of the chairmen of the, the more regional areas of the Fed. But this one was particularly interesting to me because it was with Nick Timoreau, uh, the author of a book I've recommended on here a few times called Trillion Dollar Triage. And uh, he's also the chief um, economic correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. Um, but it's a really, really interesting chat about Biden's policies, about the Fed, um, about Jerome Powell, um, and about the, inf the effects that inflation and potentially deflation um, could have on the economy. The Nick says essentially, if you think inflation was bad, wait till you see what deflation does. Uh, that will be especially bad. But um, yeah, really, really interesting, um, and it's a very good book as well. So maybe, maybe a double consumption, maybe a double book week for you here. Uh, the book I got, Steve, is just for people to know. It's about the uh, inside story from uh, Ray Dalio's uh, Bridgewater Fund. And um, it's a it's a bit of a tell all um, sort of uh, breakdown of the genius that is supposed Ray Dalio. Um, so yeah, that's what I've consumed this week, Steve. I would recommend the Sisonomics podcast so far. Uh, it's a little bit hit and miss in places. Sometimes the guests are a bit 
uh, a bit nonsense. Sometimes there's a, a lot of talk about feeling over facts, uh, which is important in economics to a degree, but sometimes it's a little bit too much. Uh, but Timur shuts it down there because Timur is a bit like, it doesn't really matter how you feel. Um, a lot of it is about facts here. And I'm not, you know, he's saying, I'm not here to give you the feelings. I'm here to give you the, the you know, the straight answers and the, and what have you. So uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Um, Steve? Cool. I will see about taking a listen then, in that case, Sliceonomics. So I want to be a little bit selective about what episodes we're listening to with uh, then, as is my podcast. I was listening this week to the AJ Bell Money and Markets uh, podcast. That's highly variable, I think, in a number of ways. And I think it's pitched at a slightly different level of investor to where I at least think of myself. Maybe maybe it's where I ought to be, right? Um, but I was listening to it this week after some of the stuff around the autumn statement, because I think it is a terrific way of getting the facts about those things fairly clearly delivered. If you want to know what was in some sort of public policy statement, they will generally have it right and they will generally present it in a fairly clear way. Um, beyond that, we start to uh, they start to go a little bit off the rails, at least in my view. Um, the and their episode qualities go up and down depending on how much of it they've got some news to talk about and how much of it they've they're trying to give views on uh stuff so the aj bell podcasts in general are a highly variable bag i stopped listening to these a little while ago when there was what i can only describe as some old guy trying to talk about wise um several months back and it was fairly clear that I don't think he would have chosen to talk about it unless someone had kind of made him do it. Uh, he was badly suited for talking about the thing. Clearly didn't understand it sort of at all um, and read off some fairly hopeless sounding uh, metrics, which put me off quite quite shockingly. Um, and they also have some some really interesting, uh, one of my favorite kind of lines from the, the show this week was they were discussing a couple of things in ISAs that we'll come back to in a bit about fractional shares and being able to buy shares in kind of big stuff like uh, Tesla without a massive outlay or Amazon, I think they're sort of thinking behind the times a little bit, but if you think sort of pre-split Amazon, that would have been you know, justifiably prohibitively expensive to people uh, who weren't able to access fractional shares and so on. So they said, look, it allows you to buy um, uh, shares in these kind of big US tech firms. And then they went on to talk about the UK government's um, announcement this week that they're going to dump their stake in NatWest, uh, hopefully over the next 12 months is the plan. And they were talking about what might this get people into investing? Might this be some people's first exposure to kind of buying shares? Maybe uh, that's that's highly plausible. But they did say, yeah, it's it's like um, like Tesla and Amazon, right? It's it's a company that people have heard of, and I'm like, yes, that is that is pretty much where the similarity to Tesla and Amazon sort of starts and stops um, for for basically any purpose. NatWest share price is a couple of quid. Tesla is significantly higher than that. Amazon significantly higher than that. I think anyone who doesn't have the cash to buy a share of NatWest outright probably has no business investing at this point in time. Um, I think if you're if you're thinking I can't get as far as finding two quid to invest or whatever the NatWest share price is, probably sit tight on the investing thing for the time being and, and work out where the other priorities are. Um, but yeah, the idea that there is some sort of kind of similarity between Tesla and NatWest beyond I've heard of both of them. Uh, that's not a deep point in common. That said, um, we're about to talk about uh, ISAs. We're about to talk about the autumn statement. A lot of what I had to say from that, particularly on the fact-based level, is is lifted almost straight from their podcast. They were going very quickly after it. So they were kind of, while this was breaking news, still digesting it, still working out what it all means. And I think their coverage of that is very high quality. 
if you are looking for something in UK stuff and news in general that's fact-based, whether it's the state of UK retail uh, or anything of that sort, I think it's a very good podcast to listen to. Uh, I do listen to it a fair bit. Um, so anytime I'm critical of anything, it comes with the obvious caveat of I'm listening to it. Uh, I, I don't find anything better to do. And um, some of the criticisms might justifiably be turned back my way too. Uh, yeah, their take on video wasn't uh, great either. But um, that's what I was listening to this time. Steve, have you ever tried this one? Or does the fact that it's a kind of uh, British investing platform brokerage thing uh, it sort of immediately put you off like it's a kind of Hargreaves Lansdowne-like thing? No, I, I have tried it, but I think I've hit the episodes that you're describing where you sort of get halfway through it and you think, this guy doesn't know anything about this company or this business, and he's just sort of reading you know, from a fact sheet and uh, not offering any kind of value. Uh, so I've often given up uh, on, a, on a number of occasions. I think I've tried it two or three times, and I, I've given up every time thinking this, this just isn't very good. There's a couple of podcasts like that where I think um, – I've gone through, and they are the. Is it the? Is it Interactive Investor who've got one, or IG have got a podcast? They do have one, yep. And both of theirs can be really hit and miss as well. Uh, there's not a lot of consistency, and and if they get the wrong guest, it's just a complete waste of your time. Um, so yeah, I, I do I do get that a couple of times from them. So um, I tend to I have them. I'm subscribed to them all, but I don't actively listen to any of them. It's not like streetwise when the streetwise podcast is out i'm i'm, I'm going to listen to it um you know i'm going to find time in the week to listen to it they're, they're not like that I'll, I'll sort of look at broadly at the topics and think even if this is bad is this something i want to listen to uh, and often the case with them that they're not covering the most interesting of stocks or the most interesting of news so i tend to give them a skip yeah, I think being selective here is a very good thing. And you kind of nailed it where you said uh, or talked about offering something of value in terms of a kind of view or some sort of insight into stuff. I generally don't particularly go for the kind of insights they offer there. What I do go for, though, is the kind of facts that they're using to inform them. And I think if you are just looking for some basic stuff about uh, UK macro or anything macro or, or anything basically UK, I think would be uh, a perfectly fine choice here. On their sister podcast, I listened to this a while back, actually, at the start of the year, and I kind of couldn't believe what I was uh, hearing. They had a guy on from, I won't name him because it's not fun naming people who are uh, giving rubbish takes. But he started off with it. He was looking for his kind of stock picks for the year, for, for this year. And it was at the start of the year. So we were actually into, into January by this point. And he said, look, looking around the, the FTSE 100, it's not actually that easy at the moment because FTSE 100 had a relatively good year last year as other things fell quite a bit. Um, and he said, well, look, basically stock market investing comes down to this, buy things when they're cheap and sell them when they're expensive or buy low, sell high. And that's quite pithy and it's hard to fill a podcast with that. But that is essentially what it is. And so what can I buy in January that's currently low? Well, he came up with one idea. Uh, that one idea was Vodafone. Um, which has lost about 17% since the start of the year. I thought, you must be kidding me. Uh, you're going to look around the FTSE 100 and the best thing you can think to buy is the only thing you can think to buy that you're basically saying, look, I think a lot of this looks quite expensive. I'm like, does it? Um, I mean, it's, it's not down is what you mean, but I don't think it looks expensive in a lot of cases. But nope, the one thing you could think looks like good value at today's January-ish prices was Vodafone, which had already come down an awful lot. That's true. Uh, but that is a good operative lesson in saying 
Um, the fact that something's come down doesn't mean it ain't going to keep going down. Likewise, the fact something's gone up doesn't mean it ain't going to keep going up. It's a, it's a really Poundland Howard Marks insight, that one. When people start recommending Vodafone, it's almost like earphones out, put them together with a phone, throw them out your car window and carry <laughs> on with your journey, isn't it? It's just, it's just yeah. not right. Yeah, I uh, I couldn't believe that one. But um, AJ Bell, Money and Markets podcast for um, fact-based UK stuff. Strong recommend uh, from me in that regard. Okay, Steve, should we get to some fact-based UK stuff? Let's do it. Okay, so uh, the awesome statement happened earlier this week, and a lot of people have already had their kind of say on it. We've had a little bit longer to digest, and uh, we asked, I think, the community whether people thought it would be good for us to discuss uh, the latest updates to the ISA regulations. And the majority of people said no. So here we go. Um, the news from the autumn statement or following the autumn statement is the following. There is no change to the overall ISA limit. So still 20,000 a year in a combination of your choice of ISAs, lifetime ISAs, stocks and shares ISAs, um, innovative finance ISAs, and so on. Um, fractional shares, which had previously been black and white, been ruled out of these things, they are going to include some of them. I haven't managed to find any kind of clarity on which ones, whether that's UK ones, US ones, big ones, uh, index listed ones, ones that trade on a certain exchange or whatever. Um, not sure. Uh, but there is some move to start including fractional shares, which is positive direction, I think, for us. Uh, they have closed down a loophole uh, that now says you have to be over 18 to invest in uh, an ordinary, as it were, ISA. Up to the, Previously, between sort of 16 and 18, I think you could have invested into an ISA and also invested into a junior ISA. So you could have claimed a £29,000 uh, tax shelter. But they're closing that off, so it's now one or the other. Um, 9000 up to eighteen. Uh, 20,000 when you get post 18. Okay, here's the more interesting stuff then uh, for the moment. You are now able to or will be able to partial transfer bits of your ISAs from one to another in any given year. And that's helpful for the following reason. Uh, it's particularly helpful. It's easiest to point out in cash ISAs, I think, but it's also helpful in the stocks and shares context. You are, If you have a cash ISA that you fixed at a certain rate, it looks like you can kind of transfer that out um, into somewhere else for the uh, rest of the year if interest rates shove higher and you find yourself with a better one. So you're also allowed multiple ISAs as well uh, by the look of things, which means that if you start investing in your ISA and you decide to cash save it for uh, three months and interest rates go higher, as they have done pretty much every time they've been considered this year, apart from the last three, I think, uh, you can then go and pay into a different ISA. So it used to be the case that you had your £20,000. You can have a cash ISA. You can have a stocks and shares ISA. You can have a uh, innovative finance ISA and you can have a LISA and you can divide that however you like apart from a maximum of four grand deposit into the LISA uh, bit of it but you can only have one of each type of thing uh, you are now able to open uh, multiple different types of um, the uh, multiple different versions sorry of the same type of ISA so if you have a cash ISA that's only paying you two and a bit percent and someone comes along and says they'll pay you four you can pay into that one for the rest of the year if you like uh, and transferring has improved there is currently no sign of either an increase to the ISA limit or the kind of mooted but not talked about on this show, Great British ISA, uh, where you could have an extra kind of ISA limit to invest in UK companies. Neither of those things has come through yet. It is, of course, there is, of course, an election year next year. I'm not convinced they're going to be on the table then either. But Steve, does any of this jump out at you as particularly interesting and discussion worthy? Or did our community have this right when they said, you're all right? 
You see, there was nothing noteworthy in here, was it? We were hoping for a little rise, perhaps. We didn't get that. We were hoping for the, the this uh, encouragement to invest in British companies, maybe an additional allowance or uh, a portion of the allowance being forced to put into British companies, and that was missing as well. Um, so the only really thing in that in the whole list that was interesting was the, the, the semi-clarification on fractional shares, which I think is now put to bed, Steve. I think the reason they didn't say all fractional shares will be allowed was because the wording of that is uh, needs to be accurate because I think I don't think they're going to allow all fractional shares. I think fractional shares of companies will be fine, but I think when it gets to like ETPs and things like that, I do wonder if that will be um, that will be allowed or leveraged products. I don't think they'll be into uh, allowing you to use those. So um, that's why I think that that wording was just a little bit a little bit dodgy. But the, it, it, the whole statement was notice uh, was was. The things you notice most were the things that were absent, I guess, is is what I'm going to say. But um, just just before we do flick on to the autumn statement of lives, and I know we did want to rattle through this, Steve, there was there was just nothing in that ISA changes list there to get you excited. I mean, there was like nine or ten points in the in the document, and every one of them was like, "All right, yeah, that, okay, that, yeah, oh." No, there's nothing in there, um, which we used to celebrate, Steve. I don't know if you remember, since Cameron's government, we used to celebrate um, coming out of things unscathed. Um, and, and I guess that's what, what, what happened with this one. We came out of it unscathed, but the, the promise was for something a little bit better, I thought, Steve, and, it, and it, it, just wasn't, it just wasn't there at all. Yeah, the hope was certainly for something a little bit better. I would be surprised if there's a meaningful change to ISA limits in the foreseeable future. Um, I think the point is there to be made that inflation means that the ISA limit is in real terms lower than it was before. Uh, and that's true, uh, as far as I can see. I would be surprised if there is a meaningful bump uh, to this, other than maybe the British ISA thing. So I wouldn't expect to see, say, the ISA limit go up to uh, 25,000 a year full stop. Um, I would be less surprised to see another 5,000 as a special British ISA thing, in the style of the uh, the lifetime ISA, maybe. But I mean, the reason I wouldn't be surprised is I would be sorry surprised to see uh, a limit increase here is that it's effectively a tax break, but it's a tax break for people who are already saving or investing twenty thousand a year because um, it only makes a difference the extended limit once you get up to the top of that. And I don't think people who are going to be meaningfully affected by that a particularly large class of people or a particularly uh, targetable uh, class of people. If you want to target and help the the worst off in society, well, they ain't saving twenty grand a year. They're not impacted by that particularly. Also, happens as your tax rate goes down, probably. Uh, and if you want to help the the kind of wealthiest in society, I'm not sure they're going to be massively impressed by another sort of five grand tax free stuff uh, here. The uh, the ISA is fine for what it is, but they're busy sticking things into other areas. There's ways you can help them. Um, mostly inheritance tax and the like that are not um, that are not particularly um, ISA friendly here. So I I think I'd be surprised to see a meaningful limit uh, raising the ISA limit. I'd be pleased to see it because I think I'd mostly be pleased for people who are not necessarily me. I'd like to see people given the opportunity to kind of build out a bit more than this, and especially with the capital gains and dividend tax thresholds coming down. In April, dividend tax uh, limit goes down from 2000 to 1000 And after that, it becomes taxed at whatever your income tax band is. So depending on your income here. But with dividend tax coming in, it feels like it would be a decent thing to see the kind of um, ISA 
limits go up here, but I'm I'm not holding out much hope for that one personally. It's um it's just about giving a little and taking a little, isn't it? I think that's what the government uh, uh, we, we're looking for here. We're looking for a little bit of balance. So obviously we know there's been a hell of a lot of fiscal drag just over the last um, the last year. Um, I mean, you can see that in the uh, some of the figures that have been put out on the tax take. Um, but, uh, you know, it would have been nice just to get, you know, even just moving with inflation, everything needs to move move with inflation. And inflation's running at 7 or uh, 10% or whatever, what it's been both, I guess. And we could really do with it, um, you know, with things moving along with it. But that that's not happening at the moment. So uh, do you want me to quickly shuffle on to what I saw in the autumn statement, Stephen? Basically, my take on it. Yeah, let's do it. Let's talk about the statement more generally then. So, I mean, the net of all of these policies was, and and obviously looking back to 2019 when was it 2019 when Boris came in? I think it was 2019, but then, uh, when we when we gave a, a Tory majority to to Boris. So basically, what's happened since then? We've had about 90 billion in additional taxes um, since then. So, and there's about 20 billion in relief in this statement. So you're netting about 70 billion in additional taxes in four years. This is across everybody, uh, including um, corporations. So. It's up about four point five percent in terms of GDP. So when this, when you hear people say it's the largest tax burden um, on the public uh, or, or on the nation since uh, World War Two or whatever it is, that's what they're that's what they're saying. It's burden in, in proportion of GDP. Uh, and for people who used to, who are old enough to remember, God Brown used to love a tax raise, Steve. <laughs> this mm-hmm. far outweighs anything he ever managed to do. Uh, it's about four thousand three hundred pound per household uh, by the end of this parliamentary term, so it's quite a heavy, uh, a heavy raise. It basically undoes everything that Cameron did since he came in uh, as as Tory prime minister in twenty ten. Um, he liked to tax cut and he liked to try and uh, reduce taxes on people, uh, but in this four year period, we've we've basically undid everything he did uh, over that period of time. So. Uh, fiscal drag is something that's happening. So fiscal drag is when uh, basically you freeze allowances in an inflationary period, um, which basically means that people, when they get wage increases, they get dragged into higher tax brackets. So they end up paying a little bit more tax. But it's not just that as well, because uh, they're freezing things like VAT allowances and they're freezing um, corporation tax um, uh, allowances and things like that, bans. Uh, People end up paying more and more tax because just the things you bought have gone up by, you know, ten percent in a year. So um, this is not just people, um, more people paying tax. This is just people paying more tax, if that makes sense. So the other thing that sort of irked me in the whole thing was this sort of pretension that there's a, or this pretending that there's a fifteen billion headroom, because. Um, that's what's known in economics as fiscal fiction. Um, so if inflation's at 10% and you're collecting more taxes just simply because you're, you're creating fiscal drag and people are spending more because things cost more, thus paying more VAT and things like that, um, that's, that, that's fine. That genuinely is an increase in sort of the public, uh, sorry, in the, uh, in the public purse. But they've frozen all of the spending on public services. So for public services to just operate efficiently now uh, and just to continue to buy the same things that they would need to buy to operate that they did this time last year, they need 10% extra in their budgets uh, and they're not getting that. And uh, I don't know how you feel about public services, Steve, but I think a lot of public services are going to really struggle to find 10% in cuts 
just to function the way that they were doing just last year. So to pretend that there was 15 billion of headroom and that this would allow them to, you know, at, at the very first junction to start throwing out tax cuts to people is a strange one to me. And I, I heard um, on uh, Torsten Bell from uh, the Resolution Foundation, they asked him if this was the Tories essentially trying to give a ticking time bomb to Rachel Reeves, like knowing they're not going to get in. So they're trying to give their hair like severely underfunded public services in crisis. And he disagreed that that was the case, but he only disagreed that that was the case because he didn't think the Tories were smart enough to come up with that plan. Um, but it does certainly look uh, like uh, like that's the sort of thing that if Labour are to come in the next parliament, that they're going to inherit. Um but yeah, the last thing I wanted to point out in this uh, report um, that I saw is that this is the first time in a really long time that we're going to come out of an election cycle poorer than we went into it as well. And it's about uh, £1,900 per household poorer. So, um, And the reason for this being is that savings rates have obviously increased, but that's like pain delayed. So the more and more mortgages fall off the old rates and go on to the new ones, it's it's just it, it, you know it's just going to be paying for for the UK while while the rates are so high. So yeah, I think it's going to be tough for the Tories to go into an election year where households are going to have it so tough. Uh, I'm sort of thinking they probably wish they had another couple of years, Steve, to try and smooth this out. Um, but yeah, that was my take on the autumn statement. I went through this. I was. Uh, perpetually bitterly disappointed by a lot of the things in there but also in the same vein i don't really see what else we could do and you look to the opposition and rachel reeves uh, stood up uh, after the statement and <clears throat> gave her take on the statement and it's very easy to bash from the other side of the the other side of the chamber to just say this is bad this is good but there's really no substance in anything labor are saying at the moment because they're not telling us what they're going to do so I think it's a foregone conclusion that Labour are in in the next uh, election, but I'd really like to see what they're going to do. I, I I just I can't I can't get excited about anything while it's just a you know a case of bashing from the other side of the chamber with no substance. I was watching um, quite an old actually episode of Frankie Boyle's New World Order uh, this week just to pick up where you finished then. Uh, I probably should have talked about this as my consumption thing, to be honest. It's more interesting than the AJ Bell thing. But uh, too late now. Um, he discusses various kind of interesting statements that he's kind of thought of with uh, some comedian guests. And one of the statements he was discussing recently is nothing can stop the Labour Party now. And the name of that nothing is Keir Starmer. Um, so I think th that kind of roughly summarises the general mood for me as well, actually, which is that it's Labour's to lose. It remains Labour's to lose. I didn't think there was tremendously much wrong with this budget. AJ Bell's guys described it, and I thought reasonably so, as giving with one hand and taking with the other. And I thought that was accurate. They were complaining about it as giving with one hand and taking with the other. But I thought, well, that's kind of the point. You've got 15 billion, which isn't enough to keep anything up with inflation. So if you give with one hand, you are going to have to mostly uh, take with the other. Here are some highlights of giving with one hand and taking with the other. The headline kind of... Um, thing was national insurance comes down from 12% to 10%, which affects pretty much everybody. There was changes in the self-employed national insurance stuff uh, as well. So class two, I think, is getting abolished. Class four comes down from 9% to 8%, which is uh, between sort of 12,000 and 35-ish uh, thousand. I should know that because I pay it, but I just pay whatever they tell me to pay. Uh, 
But that's being offset by keeping the tax bans where they are. So as people's wages push higher, they'll pay more in tax, even without the kind of NI thing uh, coming in. So the government's take on that is is down only very slightly. They're getting way more back in taxes than they are giving away NI. Um, likewise, there's a 75% business rates cut for um, in, uh, businesses in the retail, hospitality and leisure uh, sector. That's kind of a COVID hangover a little bit in the sense that they were the first to get shut down, the last to get reopened. They were hit the hardest and the longest in that sector. Rightly so, and maybe justifiably so, but but hardly their fault, as it were, um, which is all being offset, they were saying, by an increase in the living wage from £10.42 to £11.44. So their tax bill is going down and their... Um, uh, wage expenses are going up, basically. So there's there's kind of giving and taking away there as well. What both of those things do is move money away from tax and off towards people. Um, so if you think the the kind of tax bans thing and the um, national insurance lets you keep that, uh, national, uh, tax bans take it away a little bit. But the business rate stuff says, okay, don't give it to the government, give it to people instead. We will see how that kind of works. The one thing that I saw that was... Uh, I think an um, uncontested positive, even Will Hutton in The Guardian was calling this positive, and he complained about everything, and maybe rightly so, was the full expensing made permanent uh, for businesses. That allows them to claim back 25p in the pound on investments pretty much in their first year. This had been a temporary kind of trialing uh, measure, so they'll get tax relief for anything they, they spend as a way of an investment. Uh, even Will Hutton said, actually, that is genuinely kind of probably growth conducive uh, policy. This is supposed to be a kind of growth budgety type statement. Most of this doesn't really generate growth, but uh, that one probably will. The other, the one other thing I saw that I thought I'd uh, remark on is uh, the UK is going for AI. Uh, we are going to spend 500 million over two years on AI, uh, which is, I mean, it's it's not nothing. But when we get on to talking about NVIDIA in a couple of moments, um, 500 million doesn't look like such a big number uh, anymore, you might think. Uh, so what does all this mean in terms of outlook? The Office for Budgetary Responsibility, I genuinely don't know why this matters, but here's what they said. Their growth forecast for this year is up to 0.6%, down uh, forecast for next year to 0.7%, down again to 1.4% the year after that, and 1.9% the year after that. So growth will happen. Growth will increase. It will go from 0.6% to 1.9%, which is three times the growth rate, but still not a very big number. Inflation forecast to now come um, in at 2.8% in 2024, which is higher, so worse than they were expecting, uh, and reach a 2% target by 2025, borrowing 4.5% of GDP this year, uh, uh, sorry, in 2024, 3% in 2025, 2.7% in 2026. I can't see why any of these things matter, to be honest. There are two reasons for this. Number one is I suspect there'll be a different government, so these forecasts won't matter. They will do their own thing and make most of these predictions irrelevant. Second is even if we have the same government, the OBR are constantly changing their forecasts anyway. By the time we get round to recording our next show, I imagine at least one of these numbers will have changed uh, in, in the light of something. So that's their current thinking right now. Um, even if there's no change in government, by the way, or even any sign of a change in government, I think they will change some of these numbers. 2027 is the year that we will get back to the same living standards that we were in pre-pandemic, according to uh, the OBR. That's a long road to recovery after uh, quite a serious shock. Um, be interested to see how other countries are faring uh, would be my, my main takeaway on that. I'm, I'm OK with the idea that the pandemic was a big hit 
and that it wouldn't immediately kind of snap back to everything being back where it was after after having put the thing on life support for however long. Uh, that kind mm. of debt needs paying down. Is 2027 a decent recovery time frame? I'm not sure it is. Be interested to see how anyone else kind of uh, comes out of that and be interested to see whether we even make 2027. How quickly can the Labour Party get us back? It's interesting, really, isn't it? Because since the beginning of austerity back in 2010, um, mm. the UK economy was actually bigger than the Chinese economy back then. And now uh, the Chinese economy is seven, 700 times, uh, sorry, seven times larger than than the British economy. So it's kind of kind of crazy how, you know, how just how much we've stagnated and, uh, and how austerity as a policy really hasn't worked. And yet we seem to be sort of focusing on really doubling down on it. But I've seen a number of economists, Steve, say um, that the expensing is is a good idea and actually that they think that the OBR is uh, sort of undercooking the growth on that. They think that will actually lead to uh, a good a good amount of growth in the uh, UK economy. So, so, yeah, I think that was the that was the highlight of it. But remember, that is a policy that is already in place and it's just yep. that they're, they're, they're now making it permanent. So... Uh, before we move on, a quick one from Steve and me. If you're enjoying the show, please do give us a like, a comment, and a rating on whatever platform you're listening on. And make sure you share the podcast with your investing friends. It helps us a lot, and we're really looking forward to building out something that you guys can get some value from and that we can have some fun in making. So do like, subscribe, and back on with the show. The sucker's going up. Um, shall we shuffle on, Steve? Because I, I feel like the community will be banging their head against the wall. Oh, there's no one still listening. Let's talk about NVIDIA. It's worth recording it for when we release the shorts, right? Let's do it. So um, this was a really strong uh, report from NVIDIA. I, I guess you've already um, you've already sort of had a look at it by now and, and you know, you've realized just how strong this is. Um, I think um, it's quite clear to see that NVIDIA has managed to build up um, like an architecture moat via its, its various different services that you probably don't think about. You probably think, you know, a chip is a chip uh, and this one's a, a GPU and this one's a CPU. And if there's two people making GPUs, then then perhaps they're com- uh, comparative. But um, it looks like NVIDIA's got a sort of a, an architecture mode of, of CUDA, uh, InfiniBand uh, and Mellanox, which are their key services. So have a look at them if you're looking at NVIDIA. And you'll see that they've spent decades on building these and the reason why uh, will become apparent pretty quickly. But um, So this was uh, Q3 2024, Steve, somehow uh, for NVIDIA. Not quite sure how that happens, uh, but uh, here we go. Yeah. So revenue uh, was 18.1 billion. Sorry, these are all in dollars, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Uh, revenue was 18.1 billion. Uh, that was only up 206%. Uh, gross profit was thirteen point four billion. Uh, that's a seventy four percent margin, and up three hundred and twenty two percent. Net income was nine point two billion. Uh, that's a margin of fifty one percent. This one, Steve, was just up one thousand two hundred and fifty nine percent. Operating cash flow came in at seven point three billion. Finished yet? Operating cash flow came in at seven point three percent. That was a forty percent margin. That's one thousand seven hundred and seventy one percent up. A free cash flow of seven billion, margin of thirty nine percent. So, so strong, strong performance from uh, Nvidia in terms of its headline numbers there. So, in terms of segments, so data center now makes up eighty percent of revenue. Uh, it was up two hundred and seventy nine percent to fourteen point five billion. Gaming 
uh, now at 2.9 billion, was up just 81%. Uh, professional visualization was up 108% to 400 million. And then we're left with auto, which was about 4% to 300 million, and OEM, which is making chips for other people, essentially. And that was flat at 100 million. In terms of balance sheet, 8.6 billion in net cash, uh, which is 18.2 billion in cash, 9.6 billion in total debt, short term 1.2, long term 8.4. Balance sheet's very healthy, it's right way around. Um, I would expect that with a company growing at this kind of speed as well and generating this amount of profitability. In terms of guidance, um, revenue, they're looking at about 20 billion. That's up 230% or about 10% Q on Q. Um, gross profit margin, 74.5%. They're expecting about 14.9 billion in gross profit. Uh, op expenses of about 3.2 billion, which means you're going to get EBIT of about 11.7 billion. And net income should be somewhere around 10.1 billion using the, the figures above. Um. So, Steve, do you want to go over those numbers and then we'll we'll quickly talk about the call? Sure. So when is a PE of like 200 and not a PE of 200? Answer when the thing's growing at 1,259% a year. Um, this is a real example in... I, look, I don't think anyone would be well advised to look at other companies with 200 PEs and think, well, that's going to turn into a PE of like 23 by next year, um, unless they have a damn good reason for doing so. But in the case of NVIDIA... It was easy enough to look at this and say, Christ, that's, that's got a lot baked in. And it would have been true, by the way, that had an awful lot baked in. But it's impressive delivering on that kind of level, right? I mean, I the market wasn't massively um, taken with this, at least at first sight. The stock went kind of nowhere, despite some kind of gangbuster numbers. It was at a kind of gangbuster valuation, and it's now got a forward P of about 23-ish, I think, which is... Well, if they do that again, uh, they're going to be trading at a PE of about one. But um, for the time being, that that looked like roughly what the market was expecting. Huge, huge growth. Um, a lot of people, me included, thought I find that hard to see, mostly as a result of my own kind of uncertainty, but also as a result of some other things as well. Still do a little bit. Um, but... Uh, that's uh, no way around it, right? That's just impressive out of that data center segment, especially. It, it is impressive, yeah. And, and part of it was um, thinking about Tencent's report that we, we did last week was about mm -hmm. how much of this is just people stockpiling and then how much of that is like short-termism and thinking, like, will this quarter be as strong because it sounds like that China ban, you know, is 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 well in effect now and you know the alibaba pulling their cloud um ipo just thinking to yourself potentially uh these could be still impressive but not as impressive as, as the quarter before kind of results but that that's not what's happened here <laughs> these continue to be impressive and the guide i mean the visibility they're giving you on the next quarter continues to be impressive as well so this this has, I mean, this is the fastest growth I've seen of a company of this size to just go from a small meandering along where they were growing at maybe, I mean, not slow growth themselves, maybe 15, 20%, maybe a little bit more than that, to just all of a sudden 10 the taps on and start growing at sort of 200% is, is kind of incredible, Steve. And it, it makes you wonder whether this is the new new or whether this is stockpiling and, and eventually uh, all of these sort of cloud infrastructure and cloud service providers will stop buying NVIDIA chips and, and just settle with what they have or whether they, this is just this period of rapid expansion is going to carry on for a while. 
That's very much the game, isn't it? Working out what happens to demand after the sort of immediate future. Clearly, it's it's really, really high at the moment. Working out how long it can stay there is another question. This has been a tough one for a certain kind of value investor, by which I mean an everything money type value investor. I haven't actually watched anything by everything money recently um, that thinks uh, that generally speaking, the market overestimates growth or any kind of big number is to be treated with suspicion, especially when it's a big growth number of a company that is already by anybody's standards big. Um, there is you know, no sense in which NVIDIA is small. Um, you can compare it to more or less whatever you like. It's smaller than some things like um, Apple, maybe. But it's 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 big by anyone's standards. And when you get up to the big numbers, we start talking about laws of big numbers. And yes, it's hard to add another 10 percent to um, a company that's over a trillion in market cap. And probably, you know, you need to make less money to add one to that's add 10 percent sorry, to one that's one and a half billion. But that very much depends on the size of your opportunity set available to you as to how easy it is to add that. If you currently own your entire market and your entire market is a billion, it's going to be damn difficult to add 10% to that. If you're in a market the size of the chips market in AI and your NVIDIA size, probably quite a lot easier to stick another 10% on there uh, if you can find the right products and the right kind of places to go. The China stuff concerns me a little bit, um, not because... Not because I think there's a real imminent threat there particularly, but I don't like it when the stuff that I'm buying has a threat that's out of their hands. And that's always inevitable. Um, But I suspect there is little NVIDIA can do to try and sort out uh, geopolitical tensions between the US and China. And if the chips ban really does come into force and uh, we see that that's resulted in Tencent basically piling up chips because they don't know when they're going to get another one... um, I, I think that would be clearly negative. The bigger issue I have is that it's clearly negative. It's why I don't like utilities that much, to be honest, that they're forever being told what they can and can't do by things that are not them um, and may or may not be entirely reasonable uh, about stuff. But uh, that was my one kind of hesitation over this. Uh, Steve, sorry, back to you. That's okay. I was uh, just going to say that I, I will, we will come to that because NVIDIA have got some kind of solution for the chip ban. So, um Let's see what you think about this, Steve. So I'll, I'll just quickly shoot through the call. So on the quarter uh, and the guide itself, um, they said that they're expecting strong sequential growth to be driven again by um, the data center uh, segment and strong demand for both compute and networking. And they just reminded us that they guided for only about $16 billion in revenue. So to do $18.1 billion was a super strong quarter. It was a record quarter for them. Uh, revenue of $18.1 billion was actually up 34% Q on Q and up more than 200% year on year. And like I said, well above their outlook of $16 billion. So uh, it, this was largely driven, just, just to, to clarify for people, by this rapid growth in data center, which is now 80% of revenue. But it's continu- continued HGX ramp, uh, the Hopper Tensor, um, which is a chip. Uh, and with this InfiniBand CUDA and data center revenue is now 4x, networking revenue is 3x, and networking just itself is at 10 billion annual revenue uh, rate. So uh, doing pretty good. Uh, gaming recovered. Uh, it's got the back to school shopping season demand had something to do with that, but they're actually expecting a sequential decline um, next quarter. And they said that gaming will likely decline sequentially because it's tied to um, notebook seasonality. So once back to school's out the way, uh, NVIDIA invariably sell less uh, less chips. So Steve on AI, because you know NVIDIA is big on its AI, uh, they said that 
cloud infrastructure partners, uh, uh, providers, sorry, and enterprises accounted for about half of data center revenues, and they are ramping up spending on Gen AI. Uh, consumer internet companies and entities drove uh, exceptional sequential growth in Q3, comprising about half of data center revenue and outpacing total growth. Uh, most major internet companies are uh, racing to ramp up their generative AI deployment. The enterprise wave of AI adoption is now beginning. Uh, enterprise software such as Adobe, Databricks, Snowflake, and ServiceNow are all adding AI co-pilots and AI assistants to their platforms. Uh, they said cloud service providers were about half of data center revenues driven by hyperscalers and specialized cloud service providers. So cloud service providers drove roughly uh, the other half of our data center revenue in the quarter. Demand was strong from all hyperscale CSPs, uh, which is cloud service providers, as well as a broadening set of GPU specialized cloud service providers globally that are rapidly growing to address this new market opportunity in AI. So um, they said that their workloads are now the majority inferencing rather than training. So this is what this is where they got this idea from that they're starting to actually use the AI rather than train the AI, and why we should see a lot more of it. So, um, and they said that their HGX with InfiniBand, which is another one of their inventions, is a gold standard for AI uh, hardware, and it's used by all leading companies. So um, some of the most exciting generative AI applications, in their opinion, were Adobe Firefly, ChatGPT, Microsoft's 365 Copilot uh, and CoAssist, uh, and ServiceNow's NowAssist uh, was uh, the ones that they highlighted as being the, the ones that they thought were particularly interesting. So just jumping onto the China ban, um, they said that uh, the export controls to China affected about 20 to 25% of uh, data center revenues. So this could have been even bigger. Um, so towards the end of the quarter, um, the government announced a new set of export control regulations for China, but it also included some other markets that are fairly friendly with China. Uh, and it was some countries in the Middle East, Rwanda and Vietnam. Uh, and basically what's happened is, is um, they now require licenses to uh, export products, including the, the big new Hopper product in this Ampere 100 and 800 series and several others. Um, so their sales to China uh, and other effective destinations uh, derived from products that are now subject to licensing requirements have consistently contributed, uh, contributed about 20 to 25% of their data center revenue over the last couple of quarters. Uh, but they expect that these uh, China Q4 sales are going to decline, but they're going to be offset sufficiently by others. Uh, but coming, uh, coming months after this could be lower uh, and to expect uh, quite poor performance product availability if you're in those areas. Um, they said that we expect that our sales to these destinations will decline significantly in the fourth quarter, though we believe they will be more than offset by strong growth in other regions. These products, they may become uh, available in the next couple of months. However, we don't expect their contribution to be material or meaningful as a percentage of revenue. Um, so a couple of extra bits, Steve, before I uh, come on to you. The UK is making uh, making moves. Um, the Grace uh -huh. Hopper the new chip uh, uh these are grace hopper powered supercomputers are going to be built in the uk uh they said that the uk this was in the call steve we were in the call the uk government announced it will build one of the world's fastest ai supercomputers called the eisenbard ai and it's going to use about five and a half thousand of these new nvidia chips um the german supercomputing center julik 
uh, also announced that it will be uh, building a next generation AI supercomputer. Uh, this is going to have 24,000 Grace Hopper super chips and it's going to use the Quantum 2 InfiniBand. So this is actually going to be end up being the world's most powerful uh, AI supercomputer. It's going to have about 90 exaflops of AI performance, Steve, if that helps you out. So they were asked on the call what AI changes. And I thought that was an interesting question, Steve. So I've just got the answer here for people. Uh, but they said um, generative AI is probably the largest TAM expansion of software and hardware in decades because it changes the way that we access and retrieve data. Generative AI is the largest TAM expansion. Um, sorry, I've read that bit. <laughs> Cut that bit out. Uh, so is it in decades? Sorry, it's the largest uh, TAM <laughs> expansion. Yeah, got it. Got it. So. Uh, at the core of it, what's really exciting is that we uh, that what was a largely a retrieval-based computing approach, almost everything that you do is retrieved off storage somewhere, is now being augmented using a generative method, and that's changed almost everything. You can see that text-to-text or text-to-image or text-to-video or text-to-3D, text-to-protein, text-to-chemicals, these are things that were processed and typed by humans in the past. But now these are generative approaches. So the way that we access data has changed and it used to be based on explicit queries and now it's based on natural language queries, intention queries or semantic queries. So that was just their taste of what they think has changed um, with uh, with AI. So um, I thought this was a really interesting report and it's a really interesting call just to get their take on it. They're not, they're not hype merchants in the way that you would expect them to be. They're just kind of they're just kind of going with the flow and explaining what's happening at their business. So um, a big win for growth investors, Steve, I think so far. It's been a, it's been a, a big winner and it, it could this, this could stick around. Oh, I think it's almost certain to uh, stick around. So growth investors have had a tough time just lately. There's been a lot of things that have been, have had quite uh, strong looking potential and um, a kind of cold winter of rising interest rates has killed off quite a few of them, or at least sent them dormant for quite a while. But look, you're right about NVIDIA not being hype merchants. I mean, what this quarter does, if nothing else, is pretty much allow them to say whatever they like and be believed for the time being, right? They were they were guiding for big stuff. They went past the big stuff. The stock market was expecting big stuff, and they achieved it because ultimately your credibility comes down to what you say you're going to do and then what you, in fact, do. Um and you can talk as much as you like and talk about TAMs and, and so on and so forth. And that happened quite a lot during the, the sort of zero interesty stuff. And then the money never showed up in a lot of cases. And in these guys' case, yeah, um, okay, it's really bad to talk about potential and then have that never come through. But if it does, uh, then then it's a huge um, winning thing. I, I think this is a company that um, – so their credibility is high – they are talking positively about China, and I'm prepared to believe them on that about the uh, well talking positively sorry about offsetting uh the impact of kind of China export restrictions and I'm prepared to believe them on that because so far they've done everything uh pretty much right and correctly and so on um it sort of feels insane uh to try and think about buying this thing at a forward p e of twenty something only because it's like ludicrously higher than it was before. But unless you think the earnings are going to go off a cliff, 20-odd doesn't really imply doesn't imply huge growth. I mean, we still need to... 20-odd... Uh, sorry, 20-odd does kind of imply huge growth to sort of get there, basically. We still need to grow somewhat to get to to 20. Um, but it from there, you're only looking at kind of incremental moving forward here. And, and NVIDIA has a... 
it's only recently been classified as a wide moat by Morningstar. And I say recently, last couple of years or so, but they're quite late to that. Um, partly NVIDIA has had a moat, it's had a big edge. It's currently uh, demonstrating that even in the kind of semiconductor space where this is quite intensive uh, in terms of quite needing quite a lot of technical know-how and so on, there are big margins to be had as well. You can sell these things for a lot. And um, if you can convince some governments now to start trying to build supercomputers, what we're going to do with a We can't build a supercomputer, can we? We've got 500 million for uh, AI. I'm not sure quite how many of these things we're going we're gonna to get for this, but I... I was doing some scribbling while you were talking, Steve. I think that's roughly two days' profits for NVIDIA, um, £500 million. Pounds. I sort of converted 9.2 back to get 7.3 in pounds, divided by um, 30 for a day, and it's about two of those. Uh, so, so yeah, uh, we're going to spend roughly two days' worth of profits on AI in this country for, for a company like NVIDIA. Uh, I, I thought that number didn't sound like a lot when I first heard it, but then um, this kind of hammers that point home. NVIDIA is is pretty close to running the show here. Yeah, definitely. Um, I the <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Really, that we we're, we're making all this noise about building the world's fastest or one of the world's fastest AI supercomputers uh, with five yeah. and a half thousand chips, and and then just underneath it, they're announcing that um, Germany are building one about four and a bit times larger <laughs> than us. So, yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's always the case, isn't it? Um, but um, I think something is better than nothing, so I don't think we can complain too much there, Steve. But one of the other things as well that was in the call that I guess is probably worth noting is that they explained about um, how these new government regulations are affecting their their shipping to countries affected by the ban. So I suppose it's worth us just quickly touching upon that. So they said that there are products that they can send to China. This is not an outright ban. So when when, when you hear the word chip ban, you think, right, no NVIDIA products are going to mm. hit China. Um, that's not the case. So the latest products, the latest and greatest, the top of the range products, they they are not going to China. Um, that's not happening. But then the, the the class below that, all the government requires is advanced notice before you ship it. So uh, and then the government obviously will deny that shipment uh, if they think there's a problem with it. But the 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 class of products below that, so that if we're talking a couple of generations before. The government don't require any notice whatsoever, so they can free ship those um, those models to China. So, um, as Nvidia's products get better and better and better, this Hopper product will eventually become, you know, the third generation product, and it and it will make its way to China. But they will be a couple of generations behind. Now, the reason that this ban was in place, I read, was because um, basically politicians thought that. Um, um, that the Chinese would build advanced um, weaponry with with these kind of chips. Now I remember back to Peter um, uh, Peter Wenning uh, ASML when he was asked about this and he almost burst out laughing. He was like, "Have you seen these chips? Uh, the, the 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 they would not survive being in a in a rocket. They're they're literally made for computers. They're not made for uh, any kind of targeting system or being in a rocket. They would just they, 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 and they're so cost prohibitive." Um, that it would uh, that that's not what they're going to be used for. So uh, it's interesting, Steve. I think this is a bit of uh, American protectionism. So depending on your view on um, economies and I guess how you feel about insular economies, um, which I guess if we're going into a period of deglobalization, then that's um, exactly what America should be doing, I guess. But um, you know, uh, Nvidia shareholders have got to hope for 
a, a good relationship between China and America or a, str- a strengthening a relationship between America and and China because um that would be that would be great for Nvidia and uh, well I mean it's not like there can't be many Nvidia shareholders out of down Steve. Yeah, they have. When you mentioned the point about um uh you know, no you're right you, it's very difficult to be an Nvidia shareholder and down um when you mentioned the the point about it only being kind of the latest and greatest of the incarnations of chips that are under restriction here my mind immediately went to asml because something broadly similar was true there it was only kind of the latest euv machines that are uh, restricted on imports to china right you can still send out the kind of older style duv um, stuff as i understood it and in the case of asml well okay you can't flog them in euv but you have such a big euv back order list anyway it's not going to hurt for a long time that or it's not going to slow anything down for the company they're already sold them faster than they can make them for the time being might as well make some money flogging DUV stuff then, uh, in that case, which is um, kind of helpful. Same goes for NVIDIA. Uh, China presumably will take whatever the best chips it can get its hands on is, and if that's NVIDIA's second-rate chip rather than NVIDIA's first-rate chip, okay, cool. So the second-rate chip's going to go on for longer than we thought they were because um, China will buy whatever the kind of best available uh, thing is here. I, um, I, I also didn't much buy the thought about this kind of going into uh weaponry um stuff i didn't think this was the right point for those either so it wasn't uh that where my mind initially went to with um asml but the point about that restriction only applying to very highest end stuff and effectively holding the chinese back rather than cutting them off uh as a way of thinking it um it does go some way towards limiting the damage to i know asml is not a is not a us company it's a, a dutch one but also nvidia uh in these cases which makes me think it's actually quite a canny move here uh from the us because they're not going to want to harm their own uh ai uh, firm here as as much as possible so let them sell second rate chips china's not got anything better china will keep buying them china will keep importing them um, Nvidia can still make money out of this and, and decent money into what is you know a really really large uh, market. So yeah, I thought that was. Uh, now you put it like that, and I'm reminded of the same thing from ASML. That strikes me as actually quite a canny move uh, from the US. Yeah, agree with you completely, Steve. I think um, I, I think that's what it is. It, it is it is America being a protectionist. Uh, economy but i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing especially when we're going to something sort of new and exciting uh, as this and i think everybody at the moment i mean is still trying to figure out just how big and what ai is going to be um so yeah i think at the moment sort of caution is probably the best case i think so as well um i was going to just wind this up by asking but i assume i now know the answer um Steve, forward price earnings in the 20s doesn't tempt you particularly for an ASML-like thing? I don't know, because I, the reason I didn't pick NVIDIA in the first place, even though, I mean, in hindsight, it was screamingly obvious, was that um, I wasn't confident in picking a winner in, in the space. Now I, now I would be more confident in telling you that I think NVIDIA is the winner in the space, but obviously that price has been you know is has massively changed but as you rightly point out in relative terms it's probably cheaper than it was back when we were looking at it you know three four four years ago i think mm-hmm. it was probably trading at 50 60 p then and we thought that was fairly re- ridiculous and uh, that that 50 60 p then is what we always say about growth investments is how quickly that multiple deteriorates when 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 growth is um 
it's so large. And yeah, yeah we don't normally say been... it at these levels, in fairness. Yeah, yeah, growth, growth has <laughs> been exceptionally say... large. Don't worry, so the story if this grows different. at 1,200% a year, it's going <laughs> to come down quite quickly. <laughs> yeah, but that is the problem now, though, isn't it? So now you're buying at a, at a cheaper PE, and um, what happens next is interesting. Is the growth going to continue at, you know, 10, 15% from here, which is what the sort of Q on Q growth is at the moment. Is is that what we're going to get? Because at a 20 PE, that, that's fine. Um, that's probably a buy for me here. But if you're a little bit worried that this is a lot of upfront buying, which which sort of then now, you know, regulates at some point, um, then this PE could get expensive again. So it's very difficult to make a move here. I'm very happy with VAT Group and ASML. They're both doing fantastically well for me. Not NVIDIA fantastic, but they're doing fantastically well for me. And they're, a, they're an area of the market which I can be a little more convinced uh, are going to be resilient. And I think that's, um, you know, I think it's probably a thing. Maybe as I'm getting older, I'm thinking to myself, for the young people who who have got the sort of capital that they could risk, um on you know on a maybe a, a, a smaller account that's growing rapidly um you know your deposits make more of an impact than your the your stock performance nvidia is probably a really really good shout for somebody like me who's sort of somewhere in the middle of deposits and uh, growth making the massive difference i think i prefer a little bit less risk is that fair enough I think that's probably fair. The more I look at this, the more I think this looks like ASML. About two years ago, you needed a lot more vision uh, than I had to be able to see that. And if you had that vision, then congratulations, here are your rewards. Um, Enjoy. Uh, I have nothing bad to say about NVIDIA. I haven't had anything bad to say so far. Um, This stage, it looks to me like it's more obvious of an ASML, and the share price kind of reflects that obviousness is pretty much all I'm I'm seeing here. Uh, it's different in terms of scale, uh, slightly, and it's slightly different in terms of operations. But the more the more this kind of goes on, the more I think this really kind of belongs in that magnificent seven um, category of things. And uh, call it the new fangs or whatever you want in this case. And the old fangs probably should have included Microsoft anyway. So it's not the greatest, but um, it really feels like it's getting into that big kind of territory. And in that sort of area you start to see these things behaving more like defensives and less like um, growth stocks in that defensive, not in the sense of their earnings don't go up or down, but in the sense of people run into them when they get scared in a a kind of bear market and stuff. Um, You get any kind of vague hint of a shove uh, downwards on the market and everyone runs off and hides in big tech. I would expect NVIDIA to kind of find itself getting included in that category sort of reasonably soon. It definitely doesn't feel like an intruder anymore. There was a period of time when you were looking at NVIDIA in that trillion dollar list and thinking, well, this you, this one is an intruder. Uh, yeah. And it's not I mean, going to te- stay there. Um, Tesla was looking it at me like, like that look at these guys. Uh, you think we don't belong in this. Look at those. Uh, and then Meta was yeah. pointing at Tesla and um, so on and so forth. And the others, the others were pretty much uh, legit in that category, I think. But... Um, Anyway, that's pretty much all we've got time for. We're way through the hour mark and we've talked mostly about the UK, but also about some other things. Well, some things that are growing and some things that are not. Join us next week when we will talk about the same sorts of things again, but with different subject matter. Bye for now.